0: G'day, g'day, guys. Now, before we dive into today's show, I want to ask you a few quick questions. Are you looking to take your investing career to the next level? Are you wanting an accountability partner who will push you to achieve your goals? Are you needing to surround yourself with successful investors and entrepreneurs in order to up your game and take control of your life? Well, if you've answered yes to any of those questions, I am super pumped and excited to announce that I'm starting the Syndicator Incubator Mastermind Group. This mastermind is a group of highly motivated, abundance oriented hand-selected hustlers and entrepreneurs who are ready to take that next step in their investing career. We are now taking applications for the next group of champions. If you're interested to find out more, then email me at info, that's I-N-F-O, at reedgoosens.com and put in the subject line, The Syndicator Incubator. Being a part of this mastermind group, you will have unlimited access to both myself and my business partner, Andrew Campbell, and you will understand how we have been able to build a portfolio of over 1,200 units worth over $120 million in under 24 months, and we've achieved financial freedom in the process. There are once a month mastermind calls with the group and a yearly conference where you will learn from the best in the business. So what are you waiting for? There are only limited spots, so get your application pack by emailing me at info at And remember, be bold, be brave, and go give life a crack.
1: What do I do to prepare? I think for future deals, and I do believe that you can find deals in, in any market and in any part of the cycle if you buy right, uh, you, you have to be even more conservative and careful than you usually are. So one of the ways that we adjust is by looking at bad debt, for instance, which is basically all the delinquencies, all the rents you cannot collect because you're always going to have some people that won't be able to pay full rent. And usually we would look at it and say, okay, in a good market, we can burn it off over time, meaning we can uh, basically bring new tenants that can pay, you know, higher quality tenants. And now we're looking at the market and we say, okay, this is probably going to affect a lot of people let's triple or quadruple the the bad debt
0: welcome to investing in the u.s a podcast for real estate investors business owners and aspiring entrepreneurs looking to break into the u.s market Join Reid as he interviews go-getters, risk-takers and the best in the business about their journey towards financial freedom and the sheer joy of creating something from nothing. The show, the pleasure of speaking with Ellie Perlman, founder and CEO of Blue Lake Capital. Now, Ellie is also like myself, she's an expat and she is originally from Israel. Now, Ellie grew up with a, in a very blue collar household, and through hard work and determination, Ellie put herself through law school and eventually she came to the United States to attend MIT. She had a very successful career in the tech startup world, but before she realized she had a bigger calling, and that was to go start Blue Lake Capital. Um, which is a real estate syndication group, and she quit her high-paying six-figure job in the corporate world to chase her dream. She's very passionate about creating wealth from nothing, and I'm really excited to have her on the show today to share her incredible story and her knowledge with us. But enough out of me, let's get her out here. G'day, Ellie, welcome to the show. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing great, how are you, Reed?
0: I'm doing uh, much better being a Friday. Uh, <laughs> locked up in the house uh, for those people who, probably when this, this podcast comes out in two or three months' time, We are locked down for coronavirus, so we're doing a little bit of a makeshift studio today, which is, excuse the background noise if there's any background noise, but it's awesome to have you on the show. I know you and I, you're also in Los Angeles, right? You're in Santa Monica.
1: Yes, not so far away from you, actually. No, exactly,
0: exactly. But um, let's dive into it. Uh, The first question I always ask all my guests is, uh, rewind the clock and tell me how you made your first ever dollar as a kid.
1: How I made my first dollar as a kid, um, it was actually when I was 11 years old and, um, you know, I, I actually grew up in a pretty, you know, poor family and uh, to help my parents, I used to clean um, synagogues and that was my first, actually my first uh, job and I just brought some money home to, to help out. So, that was uh, the first actually shekel, not even a dollar, but a shekel that we, we go with shekels in Israel. That was the first shekel that I've, uh, that I've ever made.
0: Well, you're the first person to call it a shekel, uh, not a dollar. <laughs> so that's awesome. But talk to me a little bit about that, that upbringing. Uh, I know in your bio, and we, you mentioned that you did, I did, you did come from a very blue-collar upbringing. What was it like and, and, and what was growing up in Israel like?
1: Well, growing up in Israel in the 80s was um, uh, pretty interesting. Uh, I remember hearing stories about people who left and went to America, and most of them were in real estate. Most of them were, you know, pretty successful. And th- these are the, the kind of uh, stories that I grew up on. You know, um, my aunt left uh, Israel when I was ab- about around the same age, 11 or 12. And she actually she moved to LA. Now she's back in Israel, but she used to live here for about twenty years and she became wealthy. So for me, just being in America, I understood that this is the land of opportunities. That's kind of and that's how I grew up by um it was, you know, on the one hand I saw the people that moved to the States and were very successful and were willing to work hard. And on the other hand, um we, you know, I've experienced the Gulf War. Um that was kind of early nineties and we the the situation was not a very, uh, you know, ordinary, I think, childhood. Um, on one hand, you have to deal with wars. And uh, at school, you have drills, you know, you need to find the nearest shelter and what to do when when there is a bomb attack. Um, and um, but, you know, I I, th- I think I had a, a a pretty good childhood, even though, um, you know, I took care of, of my um, brother and sisters and growing up kind of You know, I I made sure they were doing homework and helping them with their chores and everything. So um, I didn't understand that it was an abnormal childhood, that I'm the oldest of four kids taking care of, you know, the siblings that I'm cleaning, you know, houses and synagogues when I'm 11 years old. It seemed to be pretty normal until at some point um, the kids in my neighborhood made me realize they realized that we were poor because um, the the Clothes they donated to charity ended up at our house, and I was wearing them. And then they recognized a the shirt that they donated, and that was uh, not, you know, a very interesting experience, but it's still something that I remember until today because that was the moment kind of where I said, I will not have this, um, you know, this life when I'm old enough to take care of myself. I'm going to do whatever in my power to um, build a, a better. Life for myself, for my future kids, and that was kind of this is where the fire kind of started when I understood I was in the bottom of society, and um, in in Israel at least. Of course, I'm not comparing myself to you know people in in uh, in other countries that are suffering, um, but you know for me that was kind of my reality, and I understood where I was in my cosmic, you know, in in my little universe, and that's what started the the fire, and it's still burning. It doesn't matter how successful i am or will be how much money i have or will have this the, the, this little incident um is always going to be in the background I'm, it's always going to be you know um there's always going to be the the driving force behind everything i do
0: That's so interesting to have that pain uh as a young child to experience that to understand that yes you're not you didn't you don't come from means and having probably that that point where you have wearing a shirt or a jumper or a te- you know whatever it was that someone else recognized is uh it's a pretty defining moment in your life and saying that you're going to move away from that pain and into you know making a better life for yourself um it's very interesting that your your auntie moved back to israel and i know that um a lot of israelis have moved back it's, it's, has it changed a lot over the years since you grew up there in the 80s and, and around the gulf war
1: um, you know, it's an interesting question. I think actually, well, most Israelis that I know that have, have had moved here, they actually stayed in the U.S. Um, my aunt, she just got sick at some point and she decided to go back and be with her family. Um, but many Israelis, they, they, they like it in here because there's a, there are a lot of opportunities here that we don't have in, in Israel. Um, so for even syndication, there, this model does not really exist there. We don't have Freddie Fanny and agency you know debt that can lend us money uh in in such great you know terms and low interest rate even though now it's increasing a little bit but these opportunities are not there and a lot of people that were in israel and very much middle class could move here and live comfortably while in israel there were this opportunity is not there because there's um clientele base is much smaller We're we're a much smaller country the income is not proportional to expenses. So expenses rise over the years, but income is stagnant. So there's no, it's very, very hard to save money. I remember when I was Mm. in Israel, uh, I was working full time and I had a law office that I was operating after hours and I was not able to buy a house, to buy a car. It was just, I lived in Tel Aviv. And so I didn't have much money by the end of the month because expenses were just very high and, and at that point i realized you know this is i have to be in a place that will give me opportunity to actually earn what i'm worth and i just couldn't see it over there
0: did you um do your military time back in the day uh
1: interesting question so in israel everyone has to go to the army uh and uh, i actually did not because i was uh, married at that time i was uh, ah. i got married okay. i i I was born in a very, uh, to a very religious family. And we all get married when we get to 18 years old, 19 years old. And um, that's what I did. And Interesting. I was married. I had to, I had to work and pay rent and I actually worked in two jobs. I, I had, there was no way I could go to the army because when you go to the army, you get something like a hundred dollars a month, which is kind of a stipend. And I knew I couldn't have, I, I could not survive on a hundred dollars a month. Uh, income i had to pay for food for for electricity for for rent um and uh, that's why i did not actually go to the army one of my biggest regrets by the way
0: is it it's interesting because i met actually a lot of israelis who have that no bs and i'm I'm, I'm gonna swear on the show no bullshit like you israelis are very similar to australians in that there's no filter Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) They'll just tell it how it is and and there's just like now I'm going to call you on your shit right now, and and a lot of Israelis, you know, are I sort of have an affinity with because it's like I know you're not going to pull, you know, we're we're going to talk on on you know just mano to mano, very very plain English, and you know not try to pull the wool over each other's eyes. Um, I used to work for an Israeli guy um, in New York City who was a developer, so never- um, he was a hustler, and 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 that that military of background that everyone has to go through, I think, besides obviously very rare cases, um, brings a hardness to, to the people of um, particularly the you know, now 30s and 40s folks that, that were probably back when they were 18, 19, 20, having to go through the two years of military. Um, also, been backpacking around the world a little bit myself, mm-hmm. seeing the, the Israeli people coming out of the army and then going nuts a little bit you know, <laughs> in South America yeah. and Southeast Asia. Um, they're out there to have a good time and have a good party. So I've, I've partied a lot with uh, with some awesome Israeli folks. So it's, it's pretty, pretty pretty freaking cool. Um, but talk to me about the coming to America story. The whole, you came here to study, is that right? So you were a lawyer in Tel Aviv and then you came here to, to study at MIT, is that right?
1: Yeah, so I was a lawyer in, in back in Israel and I was actually in commercial real estate law. And ex- I experienced, you know, 2008 with uh, my my clients and after after the crash, I actually decided to transition to property management, and so I worked mm-hmm. for a very big company in Israel for four years as a property manager. And at some point, I realized that America is a place for me because I remember learning about the self-made men and and you know in college, and I said, "I'm going to be a self-made woman." I know there are opportunities there that are just, just they're not they're they they're not they're not existed. Yet. I can't just find them in Israel. So um, that's basically, that's when I realized, you know, I want to go back. Um, At that point, I, after 10 years, I got a divorce and I was single. I was living in Tel Aviv. Um, I was working as a property manager. And at some point I met an amazing guy uh, who became my, that was about nine years ago, became my husband. So he's my husband today. And um, he was also an American. And I had to convince him at some point to go back to the United States because he he wanted to try something new, and he wanted he traveled back to Israel. and um, he he was working in Israel. He wanted to explore, experience something different. So he in the states, he went to Wharton, and then he was in consulting, and then he decided to do something a bit different. And at some point, I said, "Hey, I'm ready to to move." And I thought, I'm coming from Israel, all my credentials, all the companies that I work for, you know, nobody really recognized them in the States and I have to build Mm -hmm. my reputation and what a better way to do it than to go to a, a reputable school in the States. And I actually chose to go to business school because I understood that I had the legal background and experience, I had the actual property management experience. And now I, I, I was lacking the, the business component and I wanted to learn how to start businesses, how to re- read financial reports um, more you know, professionally and how to market my company. I knew I wanted to start a company, but it wasn't clear to me what exactly, you know, what kind of company is going to be real estate or not. Um, and yeah, so I moved here. That was 2004, uh, March of 2004, uh, 14, sorry. And uh, I moved with um, with my husband, and I went to MIT. You know, I chose the maybe besides Chicago, the, the coldest place with the, an interesting <laughs> business school that I could find, which was very challenging. You know, you I've never experienced going down the street, walking down the street, and not having access to my phone to call Uber to go back home when I'm in downtown because it's so cold. The pho- phones just shut shut off. You can't turn them on. <laughs> So you have to find shelter somewhere and warm your phone for twenty minutes until it's back on and pray it's still gonna be back on. You know, it's still gonna be on when the Uber is gonna try and find you. So, very tough two years um, in terms of weather. Uh, when I arrived, that was I had um, it was kind of a, a not a cultural shock but a, a weather shock. It was uh, the all time. I think it was the the toughest winter in 100 years uh, 100 year record of snow amounts and it was i'm from israel i'm not used to see snow and you know i've seen snow maybe twice before i came to the states and um i'm walking outside of my apartment and you don't see cars because the cars are completely covered by snow it's it was just insane so um but it was it was a very good experience you know, to get to know people from all around the world and and to be exposed to the american culture that was something that i really enjoyed
0: Yeah, it's interesting that you took that path of realizing that you needed something to make you different or, or assimilate to the american culture in terms of an education a lot of people uh, myself not included i actually i knew that i had to when i came here to try and find a civil engineering job or a structural engineering job I knew that I'd be behind the eight ball because I was educated outside the, of America, and there's this whole stigma about being American educated. But moving to New York City, realizing that everyone was an expat and everyone came from outside of the United States, so it was sort of like, ah, oh, I don't need to. I, I didn't go to school, but it was sort of like I had that stigma in my mind of I was going to be behind the eight ball because of where I was educated in Australia, fine if, if university, a very you know top top fifty in the world, but it was like, oh, from a HR perspective, like oh canceled or, or throw on the bin because uh, his resume shows the University of queensland in brisbane not uh not mit, so I definitely understand where you're coming from to try and assimilate to the American culture um Talk to me a little bit about that change, the transition in from you've come here, you've got your education, you now have a very well paying job, and how are you then transitioned out of that job to go and pursue a career that you really really wanted to do, which was start you know Uh, Blue Lake Capital right? Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, so um, I actually moved to California. I got a job offer at a tech company and At some point um, the the company was not doing very well and they've decided that um, My team is the first one to go Um, I was in business operations. So basically I was looking at the different parts of the company and um, I was in charge of making improvements to each team and of course, you know nobody wants to hear what they're doing wrong and how they now need to do things differently, um, and and so they the the president has decided that the one of one of the first people to to like like go being let go is you know my team should be disassembled and um, uh, it's uh, it, it was interesting because uh, my at some point my manager was gone my my. Uh, workers were gone and i was the only one that was left and that's because the the ceo really liked me and he kept me there for as long as he could and at some point he said i'm sorry i mean everyone else is gone i'm been you know giving you the last <laughs> one <laughs> yeah exactly but you know what that that period um was a really good period i think it was of about six months where you know no, no one was there it was only me um it was a really good time because I had a lot of time on my hands and I had a lot of time to start thinking, what do I want to do for my next step? And I started reading books and and listening to podcasts. And I went back to real estate was kind of, you know, my my bread and butter for so many years. And I started thinking about investing and looking into whether I wanted to do fix and flips, whether I wanted to do um, single family homes, maybe mobile home parks. I started to kind of look into different asset classes because I had a lot of time to learn and and understand you know what's out there until I got to multifamily and I understood that this is it Um, and I discovered syndication and understood that this is what I wanted to do Um, but this is kind of how I transitioned so you know at some point I was actually interviewing I was looking into investing in real estate and also interviewing for other companies and I realized at some point that if I ever wanted somebody to evaluate and value, you know, evaluate my talent and write me a check. I don't want it to be an employer. I actually want it to be an investor, someone who can trust my abilities and trust my, my judgment and my skills and, and write me a check and invest with me. And this is where I transitioned and I said, you know what, I'm not going to look for a job anymore. I'm not going to pursue this path. I'm going to start something on my own. It was scary because you're coming from a very... Comfortable life, you know, you arrive in the office at 10, you leave at 3 or 4. I was doing more than they gave me to do, and I was always taking on more projects, but I was just able to do them faster than they expected. I think it's also a cultural difference. Israelis are used to do things, you know, very quickly, and um, we're just going through it. I, I don't really know why we're like that, but this is how kind of how we are approaching things. Um, and here everything is working, you know, slow, kind of slower, I guess. Um, <laughs> and, and which that's is fine. interesting to say
0: for Americans, right? Cause everything's the, everyone thinks that Americans are fast paced, intense, um, but you're right. It's, Israelis no. can probably bring bring it. They can they can hold their own when it comes to uh, hustle.
1: Well, I, I, I used to go to my coworkers and other uh, employees and say, okay, we have a project. We need to do A, B, C, D. And the feedback I got was, whoa, slow down. We need <laughs> to process this. We need we, we're doing things differently. We're not ready to execute just yet. And everything took you know more time. And so and that's why I had a lot of time on my hands even before they disbanded my team. So, um, and, but it, I went from a very easy, comfortable, cushy six figure job to making no money at first, because it always takes time for any business to be profitable, that you go from zero to a little bit of income to higher income to be profitable, there are kind of stages along the way, and you have to be okay with it, you have to know that, you know, you have to have enough money or someone else that can support you that you are not under pressure, especially as a syndicator, to close deals just because you need the fees to survive because then you're pushed to do, to take the wrong deals and do deals, you know, for for the wrong reasons. But that was kind of my but, transition.
0: Yeah, you bring up a good point. Is I'm assuming with your husband, you spoke about this transition out of the workforce and he was there to Say yeah, I support you, and you know, you, 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 know, I've got, you know, it's going to take a period of time to get to a profitable business. So obviously, I assume he was on board, and you know, because it, yeah. ta- it takes the the closest to you to support that leap of faith to know that it will work eventually, right? So we want to talk a little bit about that because I think it's super important when you do start a business and to have the spouse or your partner on board with you uh 100 of the, the way to know that you're going to be successful and I'm, I'm gonna you know i'll take care of the bills for, for the next year you go out and build your little business because i know ultimately you've got it within you to go and give it a give it a shot
1: yeah you know reid it's a very very good question and it, sometimes the the partner that wants to make the change has all the information and they're so into it and the other partner is coming to it. And, you know, it's, it's a bit different because they're kind of looking at it from the outside. They're not you know, necessarily understanding the, the potential or how long it's right. going to take. So it's very important to, you know, basically make sure that you're both on the same page. If you have the same knowledge, you have the same tolerance for risk, that so you understand how long it's going to take. You're not going to become profitable in three or four months. Unless you know three deals, you know every month, and that's not realistic or recommended. Um, but yeah, my my partner was was very supportive, and you know I am I'm, I'm lucky that that he was because I know for others, and I'm talking to a lot of people who, you know, they're saying I want to do what you're doing, but my partner, you know, I need to talk to my wife or my husband, make sure they're on board. It's a process like anything else. You did not even you know as a as a um, an aspiring syndicator, you didn't go from zero to one and understood this is what you want to do. And, and you're absolutely committed within a week. It was a process for you. So make sure you include your partner in that process. So when you're ready to make that jump, then they're, you know, at the sa- in the same place with you. It takes time right. for people to process changes. Um, and I mean, it's, it's some people respond better than, than others to it. But uh, it's, it, it is a process, and I have to say that I do see a difference between those who have dedicated themselves to syndication 100% and those who are still holding on to their W2 jobs and trying to do it on the side. You just see the major difference there in how well they're doing, how many deals they're doing, and generally speaking, how successful they are. You can't do both.
0: Right, and look, it's it it comes down to horses for courses, right? And it's your own path, and and I think the biggest thing that, that I know, I talk to a lot of syndicators, a lot of business owners, is run your own race, right? You you are lucky enough to have a husband that can support. You and, and 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 allow you the time and freedom, mental time and freedom as well, because it also takes mental clarity. Yeah. Um, but I know some other folks, myself included, we well, had to sort of spin the plates, right? You have to have the full time job to keep the you know the roof over the head, because you know I might be not being the breadwinner, but to keep the the side hustle going. And a lot of people start out with juggling a couple of things, i.e., family, uh, work, uh, you know, W two job, and and a, and a business or a side hustle, and it and it. Is at, at that point that I, I I talk to a lot of folks, we like, they get burnt out and it's understanding to run your own race. Yes, you want to be successful tomorrow, <laughs> but in reality, it takes time. And that time, financial freedom, having a successful, profitable business, it will take time and having the right mindset going in and having the support structure around from the loved ones is really super important in order to let allow you, me, whatever, whoever you are as an entrepreneur, to build something from nothing um, and understanding that it will take time, but having the faith in that person that they will make it happen. So I think it's really important um, and something that probably not a lot of people talk about is around the home space and having it a support network around you in order to help you be successful and in order to help you be successful quicker, in my opinion. So, um, yeah, yeah. But let's dive into a little bit more of the nuts and bolts of what you do so you mentioned the word syndication. Uh, we obviously talk a lot about real estate syndication on this show. So you, where are you buying right now? We're, we're sitting here at the end of March. Uh, corona, Corona, Corona mm-hmm. is amongst us. Uh, I'm in my kitchen recording this podcast. Usually I'm in a little, little office space, but uh, unfortunately not. So how are you reacting and what are you doing now And as this wave of change is coming? Because obviously back in 2019, Things were frothy. I'm am a buyer. I've just bought deals. Just closing a deal last week, but and I'm sure you're the same. But now this is going to completely change the game. So what are you doing? And, and how are you being prepared?
1: Interesting question. So to your first question, I buy in Texas, Florida, and Georgia, and I focus on major MSAs in those markets, uh, MSAs that are have diverse, um, you know, industries job wise. And, you know, how, what do I do to your other question? What do I do to prepare? I think for future deals, and I do believe that you can find deals in, in any market, and in any part of the cycle, if you buy right, uh, you, you have to be even more conservative and careful than you usually are. So one of the ways that we adjust is by looking at bad debt, for instance, which is basically all the delinquencies, all the rents you cannot collect because you you're always going to have some people that won't be able to pay full rent. And usually we would look at it and say, OK, in a good market, we can burn it off over time, meaning we can uh, basically bring new tenants that can pay, you know, higher quality tenants. And now we're looking at the market and we say, OK, this is probably going to affect a lot of people. Let's triple or quadruple the, the bad debt. Let's just look at an unreasonable scenario where bad debt is, is going to triple for five years. I'm I'm sure it's not going to be the case, um, you know, in terms of, you know, the the length of the um, impact of the coronavirus. But let's just say that, that that's the case. Is the deal still working? Let's push, you know, right now vacancy is 4%. Let's push it to 10 or 15, maybe 10 or 12. Let's see if the deal still works. Am I still profitable? At what point am I breaking even? If the property has to drop to 60%, for instance, to be, and that's my break-even point, then I feel comfortable because I I think it's unreasonable to think that half of it is going to, or 40% is going to be vacant. And so I think that's one way of how we're getting, you know, how we're prepared for it because we're actually looking at the underwriting and we're tightening the belt even more and we're being more conservative. Now with our current properties, um, so we've we've done a few things. Uh, The first thing is, Kind of taking care of people's health and, and livelihood and, and their lives. That's more important than anything else. More than money. More than anything else. So we've instructed our property management company to minimize contact as much as possible. We um, we've educated our tenants when it comes to the CDC regulations. Uh, we close all the um, common areas. You know the the pools that. It's kind of a winter right now, so I'm not using it, but the the clubhouse, all the areas where people can have an opportunity to congregate, we we'll just close them right now just to avoid spreading the disease in case, you know, uh, one, you know, in case a tenant has it has it. And we train our property management company actually trained the employees if something happens they'll know who to call and that person it has been trained so they'll know who you know what to do if someone shows symptoms you know how to help them where to take them so we know what to do we're not just scrambling for answers and trying to understand what what happens if someone is is sick at your property so that's very important to do kind of to mitigate the risk and keep people healthy on top of that we're getting ready to deal with delinquencies and i have to say that as a person as a human being if someone is sick i can find it in my heart to evict them doesn't matter you know how savvy um a business man or woman you know how much how they look at their business just evicting sick people is something that is problematic and i think there are also orders that prevent it from happening so we're getting ready to deal with people who are not going to be able to pay rent because they're either sick or they're quarantined or they lost their jobs, then what do we do? So how do we work on a payment plan to, to basically make sure we get the rent, but maybe we give them uh, they can pay sixty or seventy percent now, and the rest, you know, is going to be kind of um, pushed to you know next month or the month after. So we're trying to find the right balance between staying human and understanding that it's going to impact the entire, it is impacting the entire world, but we're still, you know, business owners and we need to take care of, you know, of our investors as well, we're trying to find that, that fine line. Um, and I can tell you that we're also looking into collaborating with charities to deliver food to our um, tenants that are going to have a difficult time, maybe getting, you know, groceries because they're either sick and delivery Is not an option or they lost their jobs and right now they need help. So, you know, we made money by collecting rents from those tenants. And now some of them need us because not because they don't want to pay because they're in trouble. And I think it's our duty and responsibility as owners who have made money in real estate to kind of look at our communities and understand what we can do to take care of other people who are in need right now.
0: I think that's incredibly important to staying human. I just wrote that down. I think it was a really important thing that you just said. It's because it's really important as an owner to stay human and have that human touch with the tenants. And people, you know, you're seeing on Facebook, oh, you know, rent's due at the end of the month and real estate this and real estate that's better than the stock market. It's like, no, if people don't work, you don't get paid rent. And I'm sure the type of uh, demographic that you uh, house at a similar demographic that I house you know in between the thirty to sixty thousand dollars a year range you know low af- cost affordable housing right so these folks um I know on our on our portfolio we did very very much this very similar to what you were saying, but also looking at understanding what the impact's going to be so what percentage of folks are service based um, employees uh, are, are contractors uh, and understanding what that impact's going to be uh, but having that human touch and kindness to understand that this is going to change over time uh, and that, that people may not be able to afford it. So um, doing other things, you know, how do you get rent? How do you get new tenants to come in? Well, maybe you need to double down on your um, notice to vacates. You need, instead of doing yep. a 50% renewal rate, go and try and get that up to 90% or 100%. So offer $0 increases on your renewals. Um, working with payment plans, I think, is really, really important. Um, but also understanding that delinquency that as you underwrite new deals, and don't get me wrong, because there are going to be deals coming into this market right now. When, when big institutional shops can't fly from New York City because they're restricted and you're on the boots on the ground and you're looking at deals, you know, reach out to your brokers. There's going to be deals um, that can't get done because of this re- these restrictions and travel. So uh, can you sweep in there and snap up a really good deal? But how do you underwrite that correctly in order to mitigate those risks coming in? You talk about bad debt, increasing bad debt, increasing delinquency, increasing vacancy um, and modeling that out. I want to talk a little bit about the investor side of it because I think all that's really important on the the, the human touch. How are you messaging it to investors? Because you spoke about the word profitability before, and I know from owning assets that if you drop to an eighty percent occupancy, which is not that like between it's probably maybe ten basis points, and if you have a two hundred unit portfolio uh, property, that's um, that's like twenty to forty people, right? And, and twenty or forty people could be affected. Let's not get wrong. This is not this is not. Uh, It's not rocket science. How uh, are you telling investors that distributions can't be made because this will affect cash flow?
1: So I would do whatever is in my power to keep distributions as, you know, as planned. Um, I prefer personally, and that's my personal opinion, I prefer not to stop distributions at this point. Um, We have some reserves and, you know, we're, I think we're positioned to handle the next two to three months pretty well. But um, mm-hmm. we're—I don't like to stop distributions. I think if, if as long as we're making money, there's no reason to not distribute it to investors. We make sure that all the distributions are accepted after, of course, we pay the debt and after we pay expenses and whatever is left when we distribute to investors. Of course, they come before we get paid. Uh, so I don't see a reason why to stop it right now. Again, assuming that we are able to pay the, the uh, expenses. So I had a conversation with uh, my property management company yesterday and we looked into, and we do it, you know, ev- every quarter anyways, but we looked into every line item and we said, what is necessary, absolutely necessary to do right now in terms of expenses? Uh, uniforms for, you know, for the, the um, maintenance guys? No, this is not necessary. We're going to cut it. Um, utilities have to be paid but other you know line items whatever we can do marketing we need to be smart about where we market because we we don't people are not going to come to you know people are not leaving their homes which means as you mentioned you know we shifted our focus from marketing to renewals to put more emphasis on renewing and increasing we're about 60 65 percent renewal rate push it up to 80 90 percent because more likely we can convince tenants to stay put and not go look for another, um, you know, another apartment. So I think to your question distributions, we're going to keep doing that. I think that's after being human and finding the right, um, balance between being profitable and taking care of people. The second part is to make sure second priority is to make sure we are paying our bills we're repaying our debt, whatever is left. I feel comfortable distributing that to our investors.
0: Yeah, well, the, the the big thing is going to be un, it's, it's uncertainty, right? How long is this thing going on right. for? Um, how long? You're saying you got some reserves, and we, we, as good operators, you always should. Um, my philosophy is a little different. Uh, I'd rather keep cash on hand, given the uncertain times, than I would distribute it to investors. And I know we've communicated that to our investors, and they've all been very understandable because it's at the end of the day, it's a pref. It's you sit, you sit above us, and it accrues. So if you don't. If you, if you don't get it paid, because because this could go on for six six to nine months, right? Mm-hmm. And, and if you're dropping, if your delinquency increases by 5% or 10% or your vacancy increases, that's going to affect your DCR, uh, debt service coverage ratio. And so you need to be very conscious of what that buffer is. Hopefully, it's above 20% buffer. But if it starts dropping towards one where your income, uh, your NOI is equal to your debt, well, you have no profit, right? You can't distribute money. So full distributions, I think are gonna be something we are gonna look at if we, if we even pay full distributions. We got a full distribution coming up here in April. Um, but definitely different philosophies because of the uncertain nature of this whole thing. This could go on for months. If this goes on for nine months, then you need to keep cash on hand. You do not wanna be giving the keys back to the bank. <laughs> so uh, talking, also getting in front of your lenders. I know I've already had two conversations with two different lenders. There's nothing wrong right now, but hey, what's the policy moving forward? What are you going to do? You're going to work with us if something goes wrong because I don't know what's going to go wrong. I've got a lot of people that are in that service-based business um, that could could potentially be an issue. And if it's if you read the media and believe the media, it could it could it has a little bit what it's still got some legs, right? And we haven't got to the top of the the peak. Um, so when that comes and how that plateaus out and how we recover and bounce back when restaurants and shops and all that sort of stuff reopen, hopefully, it'll be quickly. But as an operator, you need to be very, very much aware of where the cash is coming from and what cash reserves you do have on hand, and obviously communicating that to investors. Investors understand they're, they're stuck in their home right now as well, probably with their kids, probably pulling their hair out. But mm-hmm. um, but it's but it's very very important to keep um, doubling down in the books. And I really like what you said about the making sure you're only spending money on what is actually important today, because it is you can save money. Um, what's your thoughts on? I know in our portfolio we're doing more virtual tours. We actually got three leases last week with virtual tours. I actually think this is an opportunity for to change the property management game in order to be more online, in order to maybe in the future reduce payroll because you don't need three people in your leasing office. Maybe you only need two because you have more virtual tours. We actually captured two virtual tour or three virtual tours sight unseen through Facebook live videos that were really kind of cool, you know, and and the the property management game, let's not lie, it's uh it's a little bit slower in terms of technology compared to other businesses around the world. So uh, around around the place. So, so what are your sort of thoughts on that as from an opportunistic point of view, changing the way in which we used to do business um, into something new and fresh uh, because of the coronavirus?
1: Yeah, Reid, I think it's a very good point. Um, and I had a conversation with our property management company saying exactly the same. This is an opportunity to become, you know, more technological savvy to see how we can do things remotely, and I think you can see it in, in other industries, not even property management. You see a lot of people who fi- find out that, hey, we can actually do our job from work, maybe not as well you know, with, with all the kiddos running around, but um, you can definitely see how I, I think it kind of made us understand that we can do a lot of things you know, remotely and digitally, and we're definitely implementing that. So our, our listing officer already started doing some shows um you know using you know zoom or, or facebook and that's these are all great tools and definitely you know we're we'll looking to it after all this madness is over and by the way i think it's going to be short-lived just by looking at what what's happening you know on one hand in in china and south korea you see the the growth rate you know you see uh you see it's flattening on the other hand we're mm-hmm. not taking as extreme measures as they do so uh, we're probably, you know, in in um, in South Korea, it took them about 30 to 40 days to have the the curve flat, you know, pretty much flat, flattened. Uh, flattened. And I don't think I mean, I, we're past that point because we're also not testing. They're testing uh, seven, you know, 70 times as much as many people as we do here in the state I think they're testing 2,500 people for every million uh, people. We're testing about. 40 or 50 or so per million so that's why i think it's we should have you know come out of this by now but i think it's going to take another month or or two until we're fully out of it but i think this is we're already in a recession and i think that this Mm -hmm. is going to be a short recession because think about it once businesses are open they're going to rehire people pretty quickly people that are eager to go back and sit at coffee shops and buy clothes and and sit at restaurants, they're going to be a demand. And you already see it in China. They're coming out of, uh, you know, output is already at 50% capacity um, manufacturing. So yes, I mean, it's, it's something to keep in mind, but I think this is right now where it's important when you buy, you buy in a very good location. So we're looking at properties that are, have very solid tenant base that the average or the median household income is 60, 70, 80, 90 thousand dollars because we believe that those communities are going to be in a much better position to pay, um, you know, to pay their rents and not to default on on their rents. Now, when it comes right. to investors, you see it's very different. You see some investors are deciding to sit on the sideline and see what happens. And then you have a lot of people that actually pull their money out of the stock market and they understand, okay, what are their options? In the stock market, they're going to lose their money right now. Just sit on cash. That will make them zero, very, very minimal interest rate. And real estate seems to be the safest option right now. You might not make 10% cash on cash. You might not make 8% cash on cash, but six to seven, you know seven seven and a half it's a lot a lot better than all the other alternatives so you are going to grow your wealth you're going to preserve your wealth and you know if it's going to be a short-lived you know um situation you're even going to make money and so i think it's really important i see deals around me you know closing there's uh, investors understand it. i think you know some are scared but the vast majority i think is so looking to deploy their capital understanding the other, you know, the opportunity cost of not investing right now and just making zero money, your money is not growing. If you keep it in the stock market, it's it's gonna deplete or you know uh, disappear. And so, real estate, I think, is really it always has been. If you look in, you know, it, it's really a solid investment. If you look at two thousand and eight, multifamily default rate was half a percent, less than half a percent. So yeah, of course, we're in a different situation now. But just to show you how resilient, not recession-proof, nothing is recession-proof, but recession-resilient multifamily is, and that's why I think investors are still going to invest in real estate, and in multifamily specifically.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I 100% agree, and two things that I want to double down on just before we come to the end of the show here is understanding that tenant base and looking for better quality assets in order to back into some, to, to know that tenants will pay their money on time because they have, have better better paying jobs. now. The returns are not going to be as great because everyone wants to be in that space, right? We're talking uh, class A types of deals rather than class C types of deals. Um, but I think it's very important for the longevity of capital over, over a long period of time um, that we are coming into you know a, a new era of investing and how to be smart and savvy about uh, understanding where the deals are going to potentially suffer from an income point of view, uh, from tenants paying their actual rent. So who, what, are, what jobs or what's the demographic being employed, the major employer within within the demographic I think is super, super important. Um, but also understanding that where else is your money going to sit right now? You know, can it sit in the bank account? Sure. You've probably lost a little bit of money in the stock market. Sure. But you can still keep investing in real estate and still make a, a very solid return of between five and 7% cash on cash each year. Um, hopefully the deals are supporting that. So I think it's super important and you've made some incredible um, golden nuggets here of information. But we are coming to the end of the show and I want to, be, want to be very respectful of your time. At the end of every show, we like to get into the top five investing tips. You ready to get into it?
1: Yeah, let's do it.
0: What is the daily habit that
1: Daily habit. Um, well, I try to prioritize. And so I, I read a book the um, uh, by Gary Keller, and basically the one thing. And so I'm practicing this where the first three to four hours of every day, I'm focusing on the one thing, the most important thing. So, And, and that's kind of what I'm trying to stick to.
0: Got it. I love it. I love yeah. it. I'm uh, very, do you do any morning rituals around that? Um, like meditation or not looking at your phone or making uh, sure you're blocking out a certain period of time that you can not, uh, have to do stuff and not look at the screen.
1: Um, I wish my answer would be yes, but unfortunately it's not. <laughs> uh, but I do, I mean, every night I kind of prioritize what I need to do and kind of what I need to focus, you know, for the first, um, part of the day and I'm trying not to do, you know, other things um i wish i wish i could meditate i just don't have the patience i need i feel like there's so many other things that are happening around me that i can be doing my take, take loves a breath it, it's, but... it's gonna be
0: fine I meditation know. trust me trust me you'll pick it up and you'll love it and you'll see you in a year's time you read thanks for thanks for pushing me you should speak to my <laughs>
1: husband because he's all about meditation he's trying to has been trying to convince me for the longest time and i just don't have the do patience. it
0: I'll, it, I'll try to maybe it. today. You, you know that's an excuse. That's a, That's and I'm gonna call bullshit on that. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, question number two: Who is the most influential person in your career to date?
1: Uh, Sam Zell. Sam Zell. Yes, his conservatism and and you know he's been
0: he's been pointing
1: out on the abnormality of having this amazing strong, amazingly strong market for ten years now. Um, and so he's and the way that he started his um career in real estate and uh he has a great book called am i being loud enough i think or something along those lines uh highly recommended very very interesting dude
0: awesome sam zell definitely check him out for sure question number three uh you would have an influential tool in your business and when i say tool i mean it could be a heart piece of a physical tool like a phone or a laptop or a person um, or a software what is the number one tool that you use in your business on a daily basis?
1: Um, I would say um, Airtable. Airtable is a very, very powerful tool Airtable. for us. Airtable? Airtable, yeah. What is that? So it's a, it's a free online kind of you know, website where you can use it for so many things. The main resource we use it is for um, just acquisition tracker. So it's kind of okay. a fancy Excel-based um, website where we can see every deal where it is um, and we push it down you know, the, the different stages so everyone in the team knows when they need to step in and take charge of that um, you know, that part of the process.
0: Have you ever used Smartsheets? Is it similar to Smartsheets? Smartsheets is sort of like Excel comes, uh, Excel scheduler, Come Trello, Trello online. Very sim- sounds very familiar, very similar Maybe. to Airtable. Yeah, check. Smart is not free, unfortunately. It's a, it's a very expensive. It, Airtable <laughs> it's, is. It's, uh, yeah, everything is right. So um, awesome. Well, I definitely have to check out Airtable. I've written that down. Uh, in one sentence, what has been the biggest failure in your career? What did you learn from that failure?
1: The, my biggest failure in my career, uh, real estate or any any career,
0: just in life doesn't doesn't what's been the biggest, biggest failure value that um,
1: you've learned from i i don't think of things as failures but obviously you know a lot of setbacks for sure um the biggest one uh which which one to do, i don't know which one to choose i mean i i tried to get into harvard i couldn't i did not get an even an interview that that was a failure um one of the i'm trying to think um back in israel i mean we all have failures. We we fail. We have a, you know little failures along the way. Hopefully, not a big one. I'm trying to think which one would be interesting to talk about. Um, you know, I think for me, when I was actually when I was a lawyer and I was working on deals, um, real estate deals, and we were negotiating with European banks on huge construction loans. And we couldn't, we we saw that something was happening. They didn't return our calls. They did not reply to our emails. And that was 2000 and, you know, back then, um, 20 years ago. But I I think our failure was to not really, um, and I don't know what we could have done differently, but not really understanding and protecting our clients because we Mm. felt that something was going on, but we were not quick to understand. We kind of accepted the fact that things are being Communication is a bit slower from the bank's point of view because they understood before we did what was happening. Uh, news kind of came a little bit late to Israel. And um, in the meantime, our clients were ex- they were spending money starting to build and dig, and they were building an um, office space in uh, Eastern Europe. So I think that's one failure as a lawyer not to kind of understand that this this behavior is not normal where you know the the lender is completely ignoring you and you need to get to the bottom of this and Mm. at the same time you know kind of advising your client something is up just give you a heads up maybe you want to pause and reconsider until we get answers because the client was so confident in the loan they're going to get before it was approved and finalized they already started to dig in and and you know start building the,
0: the spending money
1: exactly they spent a lot of money because they thought it was just a matter of time and guess what the loan never came so they lost right. a lot of money so then. i guess the,
0: i guess the, the 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 lesson is learning to read the tea leaves before or writing on the wall before it becomes yeah. too late right?
1: yeah yeah and i can tell yeah. you that um you know i've been reading a lot about the the virus and i was flying with masks um since the end Two, the last two weeks of January and actually my mm-hmm. brother that still so lives in Israel he brought it to my attention and said hey I think something is going on you need to check you need to pay close attention to it um, and then I flew to New Zealand I spent uh, two, two weeks there at the end of, um, of January the whole flight I was actually wearing a mask and people you know, 13 hours and I'm with a mask people looked at me like I'm cr- like I was crazy um, and I kept I had to keep flying, you know, to my properties in Atlanta, come back. And when I did it, you could see the shift in people's behavior from what's wrong with you? Why are you wearing this black weird mask? to how did you get it? Because we there's nothing on Amazon we can't get <laughs> masks anymore. So I think part of it is yeah, trying to read the signs and you know, understand that something exactly. Something is wrong, you have to understand. We were looking at what's happening in China, it was not in the States. Yet, and we saw we did. My husband and I just did one, one plus one. There's something going on there. It's very bad. Flights are coming in. People are infecting others without knowing. It will come here. It's a matter of time, and it's going to be bad. And that's why you know we pulled our money out of stock market uh, way before the 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 big crash because um, we just we saw it coming. So I think to your point, it's very very important to see some signs, to understand what was going on, and to dig for information. Don't just ex- sure. expect what you, you know, be okay with what you see in the media. Dig for more information. Go look for information. If you see some abnormalities, dig in, find that information, and act. And just don't, don't sit in the sidelines and, and just get information from, nothing. yeah, exactly.
0: Awesome. Well, look, final question before we end the show is where can people reach you to continue the conversation? They want to be in your sphere a little bit more. Where do they go?
1: Excellent question. Uh, So you can Google my name, Ellie Perlman. Um, My website is just ellieperlman.com and Ellie is E-L-L-I-E. And you can also email me to ellie at ellieperlman.com. That's it.
0: Awesome. Very simple. Well, look, I want to thank you so much for taking some time out of your day to jump on the show. I just want to quickly recap some of the things that I took away from today's show. I think the biggest thing is having a plan um, and having an idea of what's going to go wrong when stuff starts to shift. I think we just, you know, you you summarized it very, very well there uh, in terms of your failure that you weren't. You needed. You saw something was going wrong because the bank wasn't calling you back, and not digging in when you notice something abnormal like that, as small as it may you may think it is, it might be an issue. And so, making sure you're doing your diligence and following up and understanding what's going on to then advise your client on on the potential that the the, the loan may not come through. I think that's super super important. Um, I also like the fact that you're talking about how you are humanizing. This issue and making sure people are coming first in, in and around your communities that you own, uh, so that they are take, being taken care of first and foremost, and then worrying about the business not necessarily second, but making sure people are healthy and safe, um, and uh, you know have food on the table and, and and shelter, you know, roof over their head. So I think those are the two big key takeaways. Um, did I leave anything out?
1: Um, I think that's about it. Yeah, these are the most important <laughs> points. Good summary. <laughs>
0: awesome stuff well look thank you so much enjoy the rest of your week and we'll catch up very very soon
1: thank you be safe
0: Well, there you have another cracking episode jam-packed with some incredible advice from Ellie. Please do head over to her website at ellieperlman.com. She has a bunch of awesome stuff over there that you can check out, free resources, um, blogs, videos, and just to get in in and around her sphere, you know, go and check her out. Uh, I want to thank you all again for taking some time out of your day to continue to grow your financial IQ because that's what we're all about here on this show. And we're going to do it all again next week. So be bold, be brave, and remember, don't give